0: Hello, and welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series podcast, brought to you by the UCSF Department of Urology. In today's episode, we have Dr. Ariana Smith from the University of Pennsylvania, talking about surgical treatment of stress incontinence in women.
1: Hi, everyone. Thank you for tuning in. We'll go ahead and get started. My name is Annie Fambona, I'm a PGY3 at Penn. And today I have the pleasure of introducing Dr. Ariana Smith. She's the Director of Pelvic Medicine and Reconstructive Surgery here at Penn. After completing her residency here, she went to UCLA for her fellowship with Dr. Ross. She's a strong advocate for her patients, an excellent surgeon and an amazing teacher. And I speak for all the residents here when we say that we're very lucky to have her. So welcome Dr. Smith.
0: Oh, Thank you Annie for those very very kind words. Good morning or good afternoon to everyone, I guess depending on where you are on the East Coast, West Coast or somewhere else in the middle of the country. Um, it's really such a pleasure to be here today as part of this lectureship, lectureship series. And I'd like to thank UCSF and the organizing committee for putting together this fantastic resident education program. The title of my talk today is Surgical Treatment of Stress Urinary Incontinence in Women. Here are my disclosures. So the International Continence Society has defined stress urinary incontinence as the involuntary loss of urine with physical exertion, such as coughing, or sneezing, or sporting activities. Stress urinary incontinence is a clinical diagnosis that can be demonstrated on exam with a cough stress test. But when the patient's symptoms suggest stress incontinence, but the leakage cannot be demonstrated, urodynamics can be performed. So, urodynamic stress incontinence is defined as a corresponding loss of urine during a rise in intravesical pressure, as shown here with the red rectangle. Um, this can be termed the abdominal leak point pressure, um, and further specified as a cough leak point pressure or a Valsalva leak point pressure, as noted here. So. Any discussion of the surgical treatment of stress incontinence would not be complete without the mention of some of the theories on the pathophysiology of stress urinary incontinence. So I will go through each of these overlapping theories and the surgical procedures uh, that were developed to address the proposed pathophysiology. So the position of the proximal urethra, sometimes referred to as hypermobility when it's mispositioned, intrinsic sphincter deficiency, the hammock hypothesis, the integral theory, and damage to the urethra pelvic ligaments. And again, these are overlapping theories. They are not mutually exclusive. So, um, the position of the proximal urethral will be the first theory that we discuss. So, the urethra itself is an intrapelvic structure, and the closure pressure of the urethra is the urethral pressure minus the bladder pressure. And the urethral pressure generally, normally, is greater than zero. Um, during physical stress because the intraabdominal pressure that affects the bladder and the urethra is transmitted to both of those structures equally. And the resting bladder pressure tends to be lower than that of the urethral pressure. So as a result, with the urethral pressure higher, there is less uh, likelihood of leakage. With hypermobility, however, or movement of the proximal urethra, the urethra then moves below the GU diaphragm and out of its intrapelvic position. And now pressure is no longer transmitted equally. And a rise in intraabdominal pressure will create a greater rise in the bladder pressure than it does in the urethra. And there will be a differential pressure development that allows leakage to go from the bladder into the urethra. So, uh, with that, patients can experience stress urinary incontinence. So, this theory led to the development of the retropubic suspension surgeries, which I will show you um, in a few slides. And these surgeries were designed to prevent hypermobility by supporting the urethra in that intrapelvic position. The next theory um, is that of intrinsic sphincter deficiency, and this was first described by Dr. Ed McGuire. And intrinsic sphincter deficiency is the weakening or atrophy of the urethral muscle. It's generally accompanied by a loss of tissue bulk in the periurethral space, which is what this MRI image is trying to illustrate. If you looked at a woman with loss of bulk in the periurethral space compared to one who had a really thick periurethral area, you'd notice that the thicker area would be noted right here, with a much bigger, thicker, muscular muscular connective tissue area. So loss, loss of tissue bulk can explain incontinence in women who have no urethral hypermobility. And Urodynamically, intrinsic sphincter deficiency has been defined and has been differentiated from hypermobility with Valsalva leak point pressures less than 60 centimeters of water, which is a low amount of pressure to generate leakage, and a maximum urethral closure pressure less than 20, which is low resistance in the urethra. So this theory of intrinsic sphincter deficiency as the pathophysiology of stress incontinence led to the development of periurethral bulking agents, which are used to treat stress urinary incontinence. The next theory is the hammock hypothesis. So this is one in which the vaginal walls and the suburethral fascias provide a backboard for the urethra to close against during increases in intra-abdominal pressure. The vaginal sulcus is the insertion site for this hammock with loss of salci when the hammock is no longer supported. And you can see this on physical exam of a woman who has lost support. So this theory, the hammock hypothesis theory, led to the development of the pubovaginal sling, which is placed to reestablish that hammock and resuspend that area of the vagina and had been effective to treat stress urinary incontinence as well. The fourth of five theories we're going to talk about today is the integral theory. And this was described by Peter Petros. So this theory is based on vectors of force where opposing forces of the pelvic floor, muscles, fascias, and ligaments act to close the bladder, neck, and the urethra with increases in intra-abdominal pressure, thus creating a balance, an equilibrium. With laxity of the vaginal support and the pubo-urethral ligaments that would transmit these forces to the urethra, there's greater downward force that would then open the bladder neck and allow subsequent leakage of urine to occur. This integral theory led to the development of the synthetic mid-urethral slings, which quickly became the gold standard to treat ser- uh, stress urinary incontinence in women. The fourth theory we're going to mention today is damage to the urethral, pelvic, and pubourethral ligaments. So this theory um, further supports the use of slings, whether they be pubovaginal slings or synthetic mid-urethral slings, to treat stress incontinence, and that's because they can restore the slings, that is, can restore disrupted urethropelvic ligaments and pubourethral ligaments, which are there to hold the urethra in place behind the pubic, behind the pubic bone. So as you can see from the um, five theories I've shown you, there is quite a bit of overlap with these theories and they really are not mutually exclusive. So there um, are over 150 different surgical procedures for the treatment of stress urinary incontinence. So many have come and gone made their way in the literature, had a few publications, and then never were, were seen again. Uh, but several have persisted and have lasted the test of time. But clearly there is no perfect treatment because we're still looking for new procedures and new treatments uh, to be developed all the time. So I chose to highlight these five theories of pathophysiology uh, because they led to the development of the contemporary surgical approaches that remain in use today for the treatment of stress incontinence in women. And these approaches, as I mentioned when we went through the theories, are the retropubic suspension, uh, bulking agents, pubovaginal slings, and mid-urethral slings. So um, what are our options to treat stress incontinence in 2020? Well, these are it, and this is our menu of approaches, and these are the options we like to give women. And all of these therapies, although not considered to be equally effective or with exactly the same risk profile, are supported by AUA guidelines. But with the advent of the synthetic mid-urethral sling, the other procedures became a whole lot less common. Uh, But now, with controversy over the use of mesh, vaginal mesh specifically, um, there's renewed interest in these non-synthetic options. So this whole menu really is relevant to your education and and learning because I'm not sure in 2021 or 2022 uh, what the most common stress urinary incontinence procedure is going to be. But it'll probably be some variation on the theme of what you'll see here today. So as I mentioned, um, the AUA guidelines support surgical treatment using these four options. This AUA guideline was revised in 2017. And in that guideline, it stated that although not equivalent in efficacy or even in risk profile, these four procedures um, can be used and can be considered for the index patient or the classic patient with stress urinary incontinence. Um, The full guideline can be accessed through the education tab on the AUA website if you have a minute to take a look. Okay, so I'm going to go through um, each of these four treatment options, starting with the least invasive, periurethral bulking. Um, So periurethral bulking augments or restores urethral mucosal Coaptation. It makes the area thicker again. So if you think back to that MRI I showed you with loss of tissue in the periurethral space, bulking acts to reestablish and really, um, really augment the thickness of that urethral, urethral area. And this is thought to improve intrinsic sphincter deficiency. And in fact, urodynamic studies have shown that bulking agents do increase patients post-treatment abdominal leak point pressure. So it is creating more resistance and making it more difficult for patients to leak after this area is injected. So, what's it injected with? Well, several injectable agents have uh, fallen in and out of favor over the years. The classic injection was collagen, but that's no longer available since the herd of cows that the product came from was um, no longer maintained. Back during my time as a resident, uh, many thought leaders in the field thought stem cells would be the holy grail and no more stress incontinence surgery would be needed. But that really hasn't panned out, and at this point, stem cells should only be used in uh, clinical trials. These other synthetic agents um, are available at various institutions, depending on uh, what their hospital uh, has decided to accept, um, as far as the risk and benefit profiles. At our institution, we have both coaptite and macroplastique available at this time. Durasphere has really fallen out of favor due to migration of of the beads. Hyaluronic acid, um, which comes in the form of deflux, which was used to treat vesico-ureteral reflux in children, less commonly used today, um, and marketed, the same product marketed as Zuidex in Europe, um, is not available in the U.S. market. And Bulkamed was recently approved in U.S. In the US, and early studies suggest uh, greater durability and greater effect than some of the prior bulking agents. So, we look forward to more information on Bulkamed um, in the years to come. So, all ba- bulking agents need some type of injection needle uh, and a means of injection injecting the material. So, here's an example of one needle and syringe system that can be used to inject the bulk uh, into the periurethral space. And then this figure is demonstrating the location of the material at the bladder neck and proximal urethra. And the insert is showing what complete urethral coaptation would look like. And here's one um, injection technique I wanted to show because it is a little different than some of the others. So this is the uh, macroplastique injection technique where They um, recommend a tunneling of the needle um, so that the material doesn't come right back out the hole that the needle made in the mucosa. And there is a proprietary ratcheted injection gun that accompanies the needle and the product um, that is needed to administer this due to the very high viscosity of the macroplastic product. So it takes a little bit of strength, but once you've appropriately tunneled the needle, you then inject the material in three locations, circumferentially around the urethra, to create coaptation and bulk. And this is what that would look like. Um, So on the left, you see an open bladder neck and proximal urethra. um, And then on the other side, you see what it looks like when it's coapted and filled with the bulking agent. And that is the goal of urethral coaptation, or urethral bulking, is to create this coaptation. So what about the evidence for urethral bulking? Well, in 2017, a Cochrane Systematic Review was updated and at that time 14 trials were included with over 2,000 women. And the conclusion was that the evidence remains insufficient for periurethral bulking. And you may say, well, 14 trials, 2,000 women, that sounds pretty good for surgery, but When the trials aren't done well and the level of evidence uh, supporting the the trial design and methods uh, is not adequate, it's hard for the Cochrane Review to give um, a support for a therapy. So what we know is that the efficacy and the duration of effect of bulking is inferior to our other surgical options. There's no evidence for superiority of one of these bulking agents over the other. They all seem to be relatively similar, although we do await this interesting data on Bulkamed. Um, And there seems to be, interestingly enough, similar efficacy with saline placebo, at least in one study. The different techniques, whether you go transurethrally or periurethrally, don't seem to matter. And it also doesn't seem to matter if you inject directly at the bladder neck or inject directly at the midurethra. Most studies showed that follow-up injections are needed to maintain an effect. And the Cochrane Review concluded that bulking agents could be an option for short-term relief for women who cannot undergo anesthesia. Truth be told, I think they're used a little more than that in clinical practice, because I think there are times when people want to add a little bit more effect to something they already did that didn't get an optimal um, relief of stress incontinence, or they're buying time, um, or somebody might be planning another pregnancy. So I think bulking agents are used um, uh, above and beyond just women who can't undergo anesthesia. And then I would say in my institution when we rarely do use bulking agents, we tend to give the woman a little anesthesia for it, um, at least some sedation. But it could be done in the office-based setting if needed. So moving on to retropubic suspensions. Okay, so the Birch-Culpo suspension um, was originally described as a procedure to treat anterior vaginal wall prolapse. And with its original description, three pairs of sutures were used to really closely, tightly approximate the vaginal wall to Cooper's ligament, thus sort of raising up that whole uh, anterior vaginal wall. The Tanago modification brought this down to two pairs of sutures really targeting the midurethra and bladder neck to augment continence and recommending a more loose approximation of the vaginal wall to Cooper's ligament. And the reason was they were trying to prevent some of the complications they were seeing with the original description, which was a, a lot of tenting, uh, hyper, atten- um, hyperelevation of the anterior vaginal wall, and then a secondary enteroseal from disrupting the vectors um, in the vagina. So the Tanago modification is the one um, uh, demonstrated here with looser approximation, and I would say even most people go even looser than this with several uh, finger breaths b- between the vaginal wall and the pubic symphysis. The Marshall Marchetti-Krantz operation is much less popular than the Birch uh, and has fallen out of favor due due to primarily one major complication that would occur with this procedure. Um, But the technique was a bit different here. Permanent sutures were used to elevate the periurethral fascia to the periosteum of the pubic bone. So it was much closer to the midline and the actual urethra was included in those suspension sutures. The risk that came with this operation was osteitis pubis, or inflammation of the pubic symphysis, and this probably had to do with the fact that permanent suture material was being used through the periosteum and that with inclusion of the periurethra, we may have had migration of bacteria or urine um, that could have been bathing that field. So this procedure um, has fallen out of favor and is uh, less commonly performed today. So what are the results of retropubic suspensions? Well, um, continence rates tend to be reported as quite high in the 85 to 90% range at one year but they fall to about 70% at five years. Um, but it's really hard uh, to interpret a lot of this continents data that was reported on back in the 90s and to early 2000s, because the definition of continents was less clearly defined then. The literature today is generally pretty clear in that studies that are published now have objective continence rates, subjective continence rates, generally use patient reported outcomes rather than just the surgeon saying the patient told me that they're dry. Um, And as a result, we can compare contemporary studies a little more easily. But with some of these older studies, that's pretty difficult uh, because the methods generally don't tell us uh, explicitly how the continence was uh, defined. But for these uh, retropubic suspensions, there there was voiding difficulty that was um, occurring in about 10%. And when you think of the technique and the possibility of tenting the urethra, which is very different than our tension-free procedures that I'm going to talk more about in a minute, you could see why voiding difficulty may happen. There was also some de novo urgency incontinence at a rate of about 17%, and this may have to do with obstruction. So if the patients had tenting of the urethra and they were obstructed, they may also develop urgency incontinence. But we know they can also come from sutures being too close to the bladder um, or just from having had a continence procedure, um, all of our continence procedures run the risk of um, creating urgency and urgent continence. The other um, really important point with the retropubic suspensions are that they are less effective with intrinsic sphincter deficiency. And I think this makes sense because if you think about the pathophysiology I showed you at the beginning, If someone doesn't have hypermobility and you're doing an operation that corrects hypermobility, it's unlikely that they're going to see a real benefit. That said, there was something about the procedure that did help approximately 46% of the participants um, who had intrinsic uh, sphincter deficiency. Um, at least by urodynamic definition, and that may be because many of those patients have a more of a mixed picture, and although their leak point pressures are very low urodynamically, and they fall into the category of intrinsic sphincter deficiency, they also have some element of hypermobility. So what about um, long-term outcomes? Well, this one study uh, looked at 190 women who underwent a birch-culpal suspension uh, in the 1980s, they had a 14-year median follow-up, and they used postal questionnaires, and they found that significant urinary incontinence was experienced by about 56 of the responders, um, and only about 19% of the responders reported no incontinence episodes. So again, this was postal questionnaire, uh, only people who wanted to returned it. So you don't know how accurate this data is, but it's The only long-term data we have uh, for these procedures um, and it suggests they don't really last uh, the test of time. What about the disadvantages of the retropubic suspension? Well, they've generally been performed through an abdominal approach. Modifications to allow it to be done laparoscopically have been performed with similar outcomes. It can be technically difficult um, based on a patient's body habitus uh, and BMI to get into the space aretsia sometimes, and there can be a lot of fat in that space, and there could be a lot of difficulty really getting under uh, the symphysis. And um, as a result, it can make it a more technically challenging operation to get those sutures placed exactly where you want them, meaning there can be errors where sutures are placed where they shouldn't be, uh, thus penetrating the urinary tract or uh, permanent sutures being placed through the vaginal canal. And then as I mentioned before, it certainly has uh, lower efficacy in patients with intrinsic sphincter deficiency and as a result is not a surgery that can just be used without more um, intensive testing of the, the patients to ensure that they're appropriate candidates for the surgery. So what happened to the birch couple suspension? Well, um, essentially the mesh uh, mid-urethral sling came along and it outperformed the birch. And the birch sort of went off uh, to the side for a little while, but I'll talk to you about maybe why it it might have a place uh, in the future. So this is a study that uh, was done at 14 centers in the UK and Ireland. Uh, Surgery was standardized with an intent to treat analysis. There were 344 patients recruited for this uh, trial. They all had pure stress incontinence, and they had no prior surgery. This is two-year follow-up data, which is pretty good for uh, surgical data. And as you can see, the sling really did outperform the BIRCH, um, you know, really across the board um, with negative PAD tests, negative cough stress tests, perception of cure, um, and no, absolutely no leakage experienced. Um, And as you can see, these numbers vary quite a bit from 40% to 73%. So depending on how you want to define cure or success for your trial, it it really can make a difference in what the published results uh, look like. And that's why it's become very important today to make sure we use um, standardized reporting and we're clear about the methods that we're using. So um, this was the beginning of the end uh, for the BIRCH, at least for a little while. And this trial concluded that the mesh sling was at least as effective as the BIRCH couple suspension for the treatment of urodynamic uh, stress incontinence at two years follow-up. And bladder injury was noted to be more common with the mesh slings, which um, I'll show you some pictures of in a little bit and we'll talk about why that is. But the other problems, uh, longer voiding dysfunction, recovery times, these were all greater with the birch coval suspension. There was also a greater cost for the birch and that probably has to do with longer OR times and longer hospital stays. So how is the birch used today? Well, The BIRCH is still used um, in some situations. If patients are getting an abdominal procedure already, like a laparoscopic procedure, such as a sacral copalpexy or a hysterectomy um, or an open procedure, a BIRCH may be used, especially if the patient um, doesn't have bothersome stress incontinence, but just a mild uh, type of stress incontinence and they're looking um, to ensure that doesn't get worse uh, after treatment uh, of say, pelvic organ prolapse, or after a hysterectomy, they may get a concomitant BIRCH procedure. Sometimes patients opt for a BIRCH if they're offered, if uh, they've had a history of a mesh complication, or if they just don't like the idea of mesh. And that's where I think you may see uh, a potential resurgence of the BIRCH in years to come. So now let's move on and talk about slings. So I want to start with um, the common concepts to all slings. So slings uh, provide a hammock-like support of the bladder outlet uh, by using a a strip of mesh or tissue to support that area. It thus positions uh, the support at the bladder outlet, whether it be the bladder neck or the mid-urethra. And then the arms of that supporting material, whether it be mesh or autologous tissue, are supported uh, through passage through a potential space. The retropubic space, as in the case of like a TVT or retropubic sling, and the obturator space as in the case of a trans sling. These slings, regardless of the type, are designed to be tension-free at rest and they're not thought to provide continence by hiking up through urethra the way the retropubic suspensions Uh, were designed. They're really designed to provide support during increases in intra-abdominal pressure by preventing the descent of the bladder neck, preventing hypermobility, and providing support. And I list all of those things because they're not only effective for treating uh, hypermobility, they are also effective for treating intrinsic sphincter deficiency, which means they're doing more than just preventing um, mobility. Okay, so here's the position of slings. So, the original description of the pubovaginal sling was to place it at the bladder neck. And this was um, used generally with autologous tissue, either harvested from the abdominal area, as in the case of rectus fascia, or from the lateral thigh, as in the case of fascia lata. Whereas, with the design of the midurethral sling uh, that came, Um, After understanding the integral theory of continence, slings were then designed to be placed at the mid-urethra, at the area of maximum urethral closure to augment the, uh, the maximum urethral closure pressure. So the traditional sling, um, like I said, was at the bladder neck, and this is what it looked like, uh, where the sling would extend into the retropubic space on each side of the bladder neck, and a variety of uh, tissues could be used, allografts, xenografts, other synthetic uh, materials that were available uh, when this was originally described. and uh, most commonly, like I said, uh, rectus fascia or lata from the thigh is what is used today. Um, The autologous pubovaginal sling with uh, the rectus fascia looks something like this. I took this um, image because it made it into the New England Journal of Medicine, which I thought was pretty exciting for an incontinence study, Um, and I'll tell you more about that study in a few minutes, but this this picture was in that uh, New England Journal article so I pulled that for this talk. Um, The strip of rectus fascia in this case was placed under the bladder neck or proximal urethra area using vaginal incisions and then the two ends were passed behind the pubic bone using a needle passer and then secured above the abdominal wall. So, uh, what are the long-term outcomes of pubovaginal slings? Well, um, the first study here, Morgan et al, reported an 85% cure rate in patients with at least five years of follow-up. And Chaikin et al, reported a 95% cure rate in 20 patients with at least 10 years of follow-up. You may say, well, 85, 95, that's kind of a big difference, especially given those um, time frames. Well, some of it is small sample size, and probably a lot of it is a reflection in those differences in the definition of success and the various studies in the literature. Um, And it it really has made it difficult for us to look back and say, hey, how good were those studies? And as a result, more contemporary studies of the autologous sling have been performed using um, more contemporary methodology and um, incontinence outcomes. So this is the study I was mentioning um, from the New England Journal of Medicine. This uh, was designed in the early 2000s by the Urinary Incontinence Treatment Network. And this was a multi-center, NIH-funded, randomized control trial using 655 participants. So a pretty big surgical trial. Two-year follow-up was deemed to be important, which um, is really great for incontinence outcomes because we know that they don't often maintain the effect they have at, say, six months or a year, and that two-year time point is usually um, what the patient is going to settle with at least uh, for about 10 years. Um, So in the fascial sling group, there was a 66% uh, uh, success rate versus 49% in the birch group. And this was statistically um, significant. There were greater complications noted in the fascial sling group. There were more urinary tract infections. There was more voiding dysfunction more de novo urgency. However, from a serious adverse events perspective, it was very similar uh, for the two groups. And when you look at treatment satisfaction, there was almost a 10-point benefit for the fascial sling over, over the birch. And this study used a very strict definition of success. The patients had to have a negative pad test. They had to have no incontinence episodes on their voiding diary. They had to have a cough stress test uh, done with a half full bladder with no leakage. They could not report on validated questionnaire, any incontinence symptoms, and they couldn't be retreated. So these had to be the most perfect of perfect. um, And that's why the numbers don't look that great. 66 and 49 versus the 85 and 95 I was showing you in some of the earlier slides of studies done at earlier time points. So, then um, the synthetic mid-urethral sling um, came aboard. So, before that New England Journal of Medicine article had even made it into print, the synthetic mid sling had really become the gold standard, essentially making that study uh, antiquated or already. Um, and this device um, was one of the earlier ones that came on the market, but many more were to follow. And they were quickly adopted as the standard of care because they were minimally invasive. An outpatient quick 20, 30 minute procedure could be done to treat stress incontinence. And um, patients were satisfied, extremely satisfied. Um, The kits were uh, made of polypropylene mesh and there have been several variations of this polypropylene mesh, and it's evolved to a soft polypropylene mesh with very wide pore sizes um, today. And there are several kits still available, although less than there were a few years ago because many companies have pulled them off the market. And there is also um, mesh that can be tailored by the surgeon to make a mid-urethral sling, and I'll show you some pictures of that as well. The transopturator and the mini-sling came about with attempts to minimize the injury that could occur with the retropubic passage of the trocars for the retropubic midurethral slings. And um, I'll show you some examples of that as well. So first of all, um, the retropubic sling uh, position, uh, this is what it looks like um, from the lateral perspective and also from a cadaveric view. Um, of the mesh placed behind the urethra, behind the pubic bone. So you can see where injury could occur, especially here in the area of the bladder. And that is why we always drain the bladder and empty it to completion before passing the mesh behind the pubic symphysis to try to avoid penetrating the bladder wall. You also see that there could be small bowel floating down in this area, especially if the patient has had prior surgery. So this is the top-down approach. It's still retropubic, but the trocars are being passed from the top or the suprapubic space to the vagina. This um, approach uses two incisions up top. And one incision in the vagina, so three uh, incisions total. And passing these trocars into the vagina allows connection of the trocar to mesh in the vaginal area, and then the trocar is then pulled back up using the same trajectory through the retropubic space to deliver the mesh into the retropubic space. This is an example of the retropubic bottom-up approach. So this is when the mesh is placed bottom-up. So from the vaginal space to the retropubic space. And these are trochars that you can see here passing right behind the symphysis. Again, if the bladder is not decompressed, bladder injury can occur. Or if there's scar tissue and the bladder is sitting close to the um, pubic symphysis, you can see um, perforation with these trochars. Here's an example of surgeon-tailored mesh, and this is using the retropubic uh, top-down approach where a tunnel is placed. So now two incisions are made in the vagina to allow placement of a a surgeon-tailored piece of mesh underneath the vaginal wall, which is then anchored using the retropubic approach through the retropubic space. So the transobturator um, approach was introduced to decrease risk essentially for perforating anything in that retropubic space. And also it was thought that this may provide less obstruction or de novo urgency because it had more of a horizontal trajectory rather than a U-shaped trajectory. However, there were disadvantages identified with the transobturator. Um, There appears on meta-analysis to be a lower subjective cure rate, um, especially for recurrent stress urinary incontinence and intrinsic sphincter deficiency, and possibly uh, also in obese patients and patients with very high intra-abdominal pressure creating their leakage, such as um, high-impact athletes. And there's also this potential for difficult to treat groin and leg pain with the transobturator um, approach. So, even though all these potential benefits, um, there are some disadvantages just to fairly present um, the transobturator. But as far as understanding why um, groin pain can occur, and I think it's important to understand the anatomy of the area of the obturator. Um, where the trocars are passed. So the needle path that is taken to place an obturator sling goes around the ischiopubic ramus, and it's below the insertion of the adductor longus tendon. And that needle perforates a lot of muscles. Um, It penetrates the gracilis, the adductor brevis muscle, the obturator externus, uh, the obturator membrane, the obturator internus, um, as well as the periurethra and endopelvic fascias before it exits out the vaginal space. So there's a lot of potential risk to entrap muscle fibers. But most commonly, people think nerve pain comes from entrapment of the obturator nerve, which show, is shown out here in yellow, where uh, the trochar catches um, the nerve and the mesh essentially traps it in place. So this image is showing the difference in trajectories of mesh placed retropubically versus transobturator uh, passage. So this one over here, uh, going through the obturator muscle is the uh, transobturator sling, whereas this is the retropubic approach. Okay, so um, there were further attempts to improve safety which led to the development of the mini slings. Um, And there's conflicting immature data on mini slings. Some people have had great success, especially one year data Um, but then when those patients are followed longer and you look at some of the two and five year data it's much less encouraging and in general there are higher failure rates uh, with mini slings than with the retropubic and uh, transopterator. So all slings should have cystoscopy performed as part of the procedure and this is an example of a trocar penetrating the bladder. So maybe the bladder wasn't completely collapsed, or maybe there was scar tissue, or maybe you just kind of jiggled a, a little bit the wrong way and you captured the side of the bladder. Well, this is no big deal as long as you identify it and you remove the trocar and you replace it. You don't have to sew up the holes, you don't have to do anything special. Um, Some people advocate for leaving a catheter for a day, but there's plenty of reports in the literature where that wasn't even done and things worked out just fine. But the most important thing is to identify it, to move the trocar, and to ensure that that trocar um, is not lying in the wall of the bladder. This is a different complication, and this one, um, this one's game over. This is remove all your mesh, repair the urethra, and come back another day. So this is a transurethral passage of mesh, and um, you can't leave this here, and you can't just remove it and replace it because they have a very high likelihood of a subsequent urethral mesh erosion if you do leave mesh under an injured urethra. So this is where you place a catheter, you you fix what you can, and you come back, um, you know, probably in six weeks or more. So what about the data? Um, so six rates with the mid-urethral sling uh, were really great and that's why it quickly was adopted as the gold standard. So these green bars are using the term cured. Uh, again, this was the early 1990s, so um, cure might not exactly be what we call cure today, but none the, nonetheless, um, success rates were, were high and patients were very satisfied. And when you look even out at the four and five year data, Um, Success was maintained, and when you look based on the diagnosis, uh, genuine stress incontinence, recurrent stress incontinence, intrinsic sphincter deficiency, mixed incontinence, they're all pretty high, some a little higher than others, but nonetheless, this was a successful uh, treatment. What about comparing retropubic to transopturator? Well, this was another study done uh, by the urinary incontinence treatment network looking to um, determine which approach was better. And um, at 12 months, um, objective criteria for the two approaches met criteria for equivalence, thus objectively they were considered to be the same. Subjectively, however, they did not meet criteria for equivalence, and the retropubic approach was reported uh, to improve symptoms or cure symptoms at 62.2% versus 55.8% in the transoperator, and that was statistically significant. There was more voiding dysfunction with the retropubic approach, and there were more neurologic symptoms with the transoperator approach. So what's all the hype about vaginal mesh? Well, there are adverse events, and in fact, in this trial of transopturator versus retropubic, there were several adverse events, uh, bladder perforations, voiding dysfunction, UTIs, but most importantly, um, 4% of participants experienced a mesh complication by 24 months of follow-up. This was not different between the groups. So mesh complications are one reason why patients may undergo a reoperation after sling, um, but there are other reasons as well. And this study was a little more promising with respect to mesh erosions than the Thomas trial. It showed a 2.5% risk of mesh erosion when they looked at 188,000 slings over a period of nine years. Um, but there were other reasons patients underwent revision some of it was that they were in urinary retention or incompletely emptied and others was that the, it failed to maintain their continence it was found that reoperations were more common for younger women and that may be because they really want um, perfection they really want to be dry and also for women who had concomitant prolapse and we know that whenever you add one procedure to another there's always more risk For potential complications. So those things make sense. So this is a Cochrane systematic review on mesh mid-urethral slings. It was updated in 2017. There were 81 trials, over 12,000 women, and there was an 80 plus percent cured or significantly improved rate uh, for up to five years. Um, And this, there was also um, quality of life measures included and in marked improvement in quality of life with the mesh midurethral sling. <clears throat> this Cochrane review found similar efficacies uh, between the retropubic and the transobturator approaches. However, they did find repeat incontinence surgery was more likely with a transobturator approach. Overall complications were considered to be low with some. Ladder perforations with the retropubic, as well as some voiding dysfunction and some groin pain with the transopterator. And this Cochrane review showed a 2% risk of vaginal mesh exposure. So we've seen 2%, 2.5%, and 4% today. So it's probably somewhere in that range. What about repeat slings? What should we be using if someone fails their first sling? Well, um, composite failure rate of a second sling is higher. Than it is for the first, and that makes sense. That's clearly a patient who is more difficult to treat. And biologic slings, which we haven't even talked about today because they're no longer advocated, um, were d- definitely had a higher failure rate than some of the others. And when you look at trans, uh, when you look at the retropubic versus the trans approach, the retropubic does better in salvaging failed surgery um, than the trans obturator So for a second surgery, it's best to go retropubically. The autologous sling also did a very good job of salve- salvaging a failed mesh sling, um, with roughly 70% success rates. This was a um, contemporary study looking at fascial slings versus mesh slings, and this is important because in the mesh complication era we live in, women want choice and they want to know um, if the autologous is as good as the mesh sling. So this study looked at 201 women. They were offered a fascial sling or a mesh synthetic mid-urethral sling. 91 chose the autologous and 110 chose the mesh. Um, So these were not randomized. Um, Medium follow-up was 13.8 months, so a little shorter than we like to see. We like to see two years at least. But cure rates were nearly identical between the two groups. They were not statistically different. They had very comparable voiding dysfunction and complication rates. And the authors of this article concluded that the fascial slings may be safely offered to patients concerned about the implantation of mesh. So here we came full circle. First, the mesh had to prove itself equivalent um, and then superior to the autologous and now we've come back to the autologous having to prove itself similar or non-inferior to mesh. So I ended with this slide because um, I really wanted to point out that in the mesh climate we are currently um, living in, there's room for all sorts of options um, for the treatment of stress urinary incontinence in women and this menu of options um, Remains uh, remain viable options um, for the future, at least for the foreseeable future, until something better comes along. There's clearly no perfect procedure for the treatment of stress incontinence, and we really need to weigh the risks and benefits of the treatment approaches for our individual patients. And stem cells have been found, and they really don't appear to be the holy grail. So team up with your bioengineering friends and your other multidisciplinary research teams and try to discover something new because it's um, ripe for the taking. So um, I'm gonna bring this slide up here um, as Annie comes back on to bring um, your questions forward. And Please share your thoughts by taking the survey on this lecture. It really helps the group understand how to serve your needs uh, better. So thank you all for your attention today.
1: Thank you, Dr. Smith. That was a great talk. Uh, We have a couple questions. Um, First one is how are you diagnosing ISD in your practice and do you actually use a Q-tip test?
0: (laughs) Two really great questions. So I'm gonna take the second question first. So I used a Q-tip test, test as a fellow, and probably for my first year or so in practice. Um, but then I was able to see it, and that's the hypermobility, uh, without the actual Q-tip there. But I did use it in, during my early years to really make sure I was diagnosing um, hypermobility appropriately. appropriately, making sure there was at least a 30-degree change in the angulation of the urethra to give that diagnosis of hypermobility. So, in my practice, I don't necessarily uh, diagnose intrinsic sphincter deficiency, so you may all be aware of the level one evidence that has been produced to justify why women with complaints of stress urinary incontinence do not need to undergo urodynamic testing before proceeding to surgical intervention. And that value trial showed us that there was no additional value, no added benefit of urodynamic testing for the index patient with stress incontinence. So as a result, um, before women elect to undergo surgery in my practice, I do not get urodynamics unless there's a reason to do so. Mixed incontinence, uh, failed prior surgery, um, concomitant prolapse, other things that really um, really pushed me towards um, getting that urodynamics. And in the absence of doing urodynamics, there's not a great way to to make that diagnosis of intrinsic uh, sphincter deficiency. Although if you examine a woman and there's no hypermobility on exam, but you're seeing that urine come out with an increase in intra-abdominal pressure, it's likely that they have intrinsic sphincter deficiency.
1: All right and then uh a second question relating to it is um while you were using the q tip test was there anything that you used um or any special way that you did it any local anesthetic because they they feel like um they it causes a lot of pain and discomfort to their patients
0: yeah so that's a great a great point so i would always make main, make sure that it was a well lubricated q tip um so i would have the jelly squeezed out for the speculum portion of the exam anyway and I would take the Q-tip and we used to have these pretty long Q-tips and I would break it in half so the patient wouldn't get so nervous because nobody likes to think of something long going in inside them so I always break them in half to make it much shorter and I would lube up the tip of the Q-tip very, very, very well and then I would ask them to relax. So just like you do when you place a catheter in a patient and you ask them to try not to squeeze, to try to relax, or even I've heard lots of people say, just pretend you're peeing or just go ahead and pee and we're going to pass that catheter in. Um, and I would pass the Q-tip in to the urethra, um, well lubricated.
1: Okay, awesome. I bet those are all our questions for today. Thank you everybody for joining us. Thank you again, Dr. Smith. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Learn more
0: by visiting our website, urologycovid.ucsf.edu.